0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, July 22nd, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio in Northfield. Our show is dedicated to the honest, frank, and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into a specific policy subject, and we'll have guests on the show that are experts in the field. To the greatest extent possible, we're going to stay away from the politics of an issue and instead concentrate on research, on data-driven findings and on facts that help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. The show will run the gamut from typical neighborhood concerns to municipal, state and national level issues. Everything is fair game on this show. We also have a unique approach and who will host this show? We've created a bullpen of people who represent the political spectrum. It will be our job as hosts to ask the hard questions of our policy expert guests to offer our listeners knowledge on these issues so each of you can form your own ideas on the best way forward. It is our greatest hope among this group of hosts that our civil, thoughtful dialogue about very important public policy issues with real policy experts will serve as a way to convey those policy ideas to you. Again, we will concentrate on policy, not politics. In many ways, this show will reflect how things used to be when people from different backgrounds with different beliefs were able to have these meaningful conversations and were able to arrive at consensus on how to solve difficult societal problems. For today's episode, your hosts will be myself, I'm Rich Larson, the news director here at KYMN Radio, and joining me today on Public Policy this week is my co-host Joe Moravchik, a retired police officer, adjunct faculty in criminal justice, former candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives, and longtime coach and administrator for youth and high school athletic teams, which is especially pertinent because we'll be discussing major changes taking place in athletics on today's program. Good morning, Joe.
1: Changes to college athletics, indeed. If you are a fan of college athletics, and we have two athletic programs in Northfield that students, fans, and alumni root for, St. Olaf and Carlton, of course, you know that the most significant changes since the NCAA's inception year of 1906 are taking place now. In the summer of 2021, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, in the, NC, in the case NCAA v. Alston, ruled that the NCAA cannot restrict education-related compensation benefits for student-athletes. The result of this seismic decision is that the NCAA had to form new rules allowing student-athletes to receive financial compensation for their name, image, and likeness for the first time in NCAA history. State legislatures followed the Supreme Court and NCAA's lead, and now many states have in place laws allowing and regulating how college and high school athletes Can market and receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness, abbreviated as NIL. We have two guests with us today. Attorney Eric Breber is in studio, and Coach Pat Miller is joining us from Southern Wisconsin via Zoom. Here's some background on both of our guests.
0: Attorney Eric Brever is the managing partner of the Warnson-Goggins Law Firm in New Prague, Minnesota, focusing primarily on business law and estate planning. Mr. Brever has a Bachelor of Arts Magna Cum Laude from St. John's University and a Juris Dr. Cum Laude from the University of Minnesota Law School. He has been named a Rising Star Super Lawyer four times for the years 2015 through 2019. In addition to practicing law, Mr. Brever is an adjunct professor at St. Cloud University and Southwest Minnesota State University, teaching sports law, sports marketing, sports facilities management, and technology use for coaches and athletic departments. Mr. Brever has also taught law tax practice at the University of Minnesota Law School. When Mr. Brever is not practicing or teaching law, he is an assistant coach of the New Prague High School's hockey and football programs, and he is the chair of the 32-team Twin Cities High School Football District of the Minnesota State High School League. Attorney and Professor Eric Brever, welcome to Public Policy Today. Thank you. Good morning. Good Good morning. You're one of the busiest people I've ever encountered in my entire life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I try and keep busy, keep out of trouble that way. (laughs) Our second guest is... Pat Miller Pat Miller is the head coach for the University of Wisconsin Whitewater Warhawks men's basketball team. This fall, Pat will begin his 22nd year as the Warhawks head coach. UW-Whitewater competes in the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Coach Miller's teams have won six regular season conference championships, four conference tournament titles, and have qualified for the NCAA tournament nine times. He is a four-time conference coach of the year. Coach Miller has led his Warhawk teams to two national championships in men's basketball. 2011-12, and 2013-14. He has coached 63 all-conference players, five conference players of the year, seven All-Americans, and one national player of the year. Coach Miller has more wins than any other current coach in the WIAC, and he has the best conference winning percentage of all time at 72%. Pat Miller has 409 wins in 21 years of coaching. He was inducted into the Wisconsin Basketball Coaches Association Hall of Fame in 2019. Prior to coaching at UW-Whitewater, Pat played for the Warhawks. He was the co-captain and third-leading scorer on a team that won the 1988-89 National Championship. Additionally, he was the Conference Scholar of the Year. Pat was inducted into the UW-Whitewater Hall of Fame in 2006. In addition to coaching and and directing summer basketball camps, Pat is also a frequent guest speaker for corporations and youth athletic programs on the topics of leadership, teamwork, communication, culture, and positive change. Coach Miller, welcome to Public Policy Today.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you guys today.
1: After reading your two bios, I think I have to completely reevaluate my own life, (laughs) my own direction. (laughs)
0: I understand this feeling completely.
1: Well, let's get into it. Um, Eric, prepping for today's program. I read in an article from The Atlantic a quote from the dean of Harvard from 1892 as he contemplated whether to continue football at Harvard. He said, Deaths and injuries are not the strongest arguments against football. That cheating and brutality are profitable is the main evil. Again, that's Charles Elliott from 1892. Mr. Elliott Elliott certainly knew about the rigors of athletics, And that there was money to be made, but I don't think he could have foresaw that amateur athletes would generate billions of dollars in revenue for universities. But here we are. You teach various courses in sports law at two Minnesota universities. I'd imagine that your curriculum is changing fast due to NIL and the related topics of transfer portals and conference realignments, all tied to the lucrative business of college sports.
3: Yeah, it's, it's kind of an exciting time to be working in, in sports law particularly because things are changing fast. You know, in addition to, to realignment and, and the NIL transfer portal and the like, you also have the 50th anniversary of Title Nine, which is this summer itself. You've got an influx of, of or the creep of sports gambling that's coming into to broadcasting dollars and the like. You've got uh, increased focus on antitrust, which you've seen uh, as part of the Alston decision we'll talk about here I'm sure in a little bit. Um, and we're seeing, uh, you know, how we can Re- recharacterize potentially um, student athletes uh, in more of an employment context, also at the college level. So it's a really great topic for for a public policy show because you see so many different tentacles that are all kind of uh, putting forth with it. Uh, you know, in in 1892, when that when uh, Mr. Elliott made that quote itself, um, he probably wouldn't have foreseen that four years later the Big Ten Conference was to be formed and. and Uh, 14 years later, the NCAA was to be formed. Um, So I think he was foreseeing the future, but it was probably a little closer than he thought uh, in terms of all this was coming down. But there's been a long interplay between, say, policy and and, and government involved in college athletics. uh, And continue up to the presence and every day it's it's a new challenge and you've got to keep monitoring twitter because see what's happening in the next, last five minutes and who else has joined the big 10
0: <laughs> that's a whole different conversation i you, i mean you want to talk about new things every day pat you've been a part of college athletics for more than 30 years as a player and a coach has there ever been uh, a greater change to collegiate athletics during your time as a coach than nil
2: No, I don't think so. And and the thing that's, I think, accelerated NIL to an extent is the whole transfer portal issue. And um, student-athletes are now able to transfer one time without penalty. They don't have to sit out. And actually, the President's Council yesterday proposed that they eliminate the one-time component of that, which would basically allow student-athletes to transfer at will if they're academically eligible to participate, which would essentially create a free agent market, which I would argue somewhat is what's in play now. So the whole landscape of college athletics has changed dramatically. And, you know, I think this having rich here as I was preparing for this, there's so many legal elements to this. I think what's going to be important for listeners to understand is the whole concept of amateurism, uh, how we came about with the term student athlete, because those were not altruistic, um perspectives they were legal defenses so so there's a, a big intertwining of the, the legal aspects along with the ncaa and what they're really about and, and who they're really representing and um you know i think with nil that the genie is certainly out of the bottle uh, i don't really foresee any way to, that it's going to come back it's only going to escalate as people get more sophisticated so it's the landscape is changed forever and it's, it's going to continue to change Eric,
0: who is going to be paying these people? Who is going to pay the college and high school athletes for their name, image, and likeness? Coaches and athletic departments aren't aren't allowed to do it. Um, It sounds like at this point school booster clubs aren't allowed to do it. I've read about collectives um, that are being developed to get involved. I don't know what that is. Can you explain what all this means to us, please? Sure.
3: Yeah, let me If I can start, let's take a step back and kind of talk about how this came into being sure. um, and, and really kind of build it up from there. This is all kind of uh, the direct result of a, a case out of California called the O'Bannon lawsuit, or at least known as the O'Bannon lawsuit. Uh, for those who are familiar with your NCAA tournament and your pickums every March madness, uh, Ed O'Bannon was a basketball player at UCLA back in 1995 or the early 90s, uh, had led the uh, Bruins, now the Big Ten team, uh, to the national title. <laughs> Uh, in 1995 itself and in 2008 uh, he happened to be visiting a friend's place and he he found his friend's son playing video games on the computer one of them being NCAA basketball and the friend's son was playing as UCLA and uh, Ed O'Bannon looked at at the, the game and said hey That guy right there looks a lot like me. He's got my number. He has my height. He has my attributes. That's me. Probably had the
1: name on the back of the jersey, too. I would imagine. You know, everything but the name. It
3: was player number 31. Uh But but the whole idea there is that that's me playing that game. And Ed said, and, and reasonably said this, wait a minute. EA Sports, who developed the game, is getting paid for this. The NCAA which license the game is getting paid for this. UCLA is getting paid for this because they're licensing their logo and the like. I'm the only one not getting paid for this thing. So he formed a lawsuit that led itself up through the California courts and the federal district courts itself and the courts kind of weighed this issue itself. And this is a really difficult legal issue because you're really asking the business side of what the NCAA does. And remember, the NCAA is just a consortium of all of these schools nationwide. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yes, it's making a lot of money, but it really it's just a consortium of schools getting together and saying, this is how we want to kind of work together to do this. Okay? And that brings this whole idea of antitrust into the, the picture itself. And, and what rights does the NCAA have to be able to say, we own the market to this and nobody else can go outside of that, right? So, so that's your starting point uh, of this whole thing itself. What the California courts came to be in the Ninth Circuit, which is a court of appeals uh, representing the California and the Western area of the United States, what they basically said is, look, the NCAA can retain jurisdiction and oversee sports contests and those related to the academic environment. But for athletes that go outside of that or do things, activities outside of that, that's not within the NCAA's purview to act. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, so when you apply that to the NIL, what, what this means is that the NCAA can limit compensation from a school based on somebody playing or, or we call pay to play. The NCAA can say, we're not going to pay to play kids. Mm-hmm. By the same point, the the court said the NCAA has no business telling what a kid can do outside of their hours as a student-athlete that's not within the NCAA's jurisdiction okay so that's the O'Bannon lawsuit. That's where this all kind of comes from itself. Then taking a step further, um, the, the, the NCAA and schools appealed this all the way to the Supreme Court. That's the Alston case. And that's that case basically held the NCAA does not get an antitrust exemption, meaning they're still subject to the rules of playing in a free market and a fair market economy. Okay. So they don't get this ability of saying, well, we need the ability to do this because of uh, some overarching public policy no, the court said you've got to play it the way everybody else has to play it. And what's remarkable about that is that's a 9-0 decision at the Supreme Court. In this era of hyper-partisanship, of. that doesn't uh, happen. It's the yeah. one thing the Supreme Court could agree on is that the NCAA has to play by the rules of a free market economy and has to give student-athletes this ability to, um, uh, to go out and, and do it with their own side on their own time itself. Okay, so, so that's the starting point here what we're talking about. And a base level, this makes sense, right? Can a student athlete now have a job and make money from it? Sure, because previously the NCAA had rules against that. Uh, the, where we see it most notably is, can a student athlete use social media to sell products and advertise for that? And that's what the, the law now says, is that the NCAA can't restrict that. And the NCAA's weight against this, their whole argument for the last, say, 50 years against this was people are going to use it for advantageous purposes to benefit one group or another. We can't maintain amateurism in this country. And the court wasn't swayed by this. The court basically said, no, figure out a different way to do it. Not our job to impose it on you. That's your job as schools to do it. OK, so, so that's the background here with it. So we bring up the whole level of, of this and, and at a base level, say Warren and Goggins, a nice little law firm in New Prague, would be happy to sponsor <laughs> a student athlete, you know, in some fashion. So if the student athlete wants to promote Warren and Goggins, hey, you know, we now can pay that student athlete to do that.
1: Eric, I have two daughters who play college hockey.
3: Excellent! Hey, <laughs> <laughs> if promotes Warren Sengauges just don't get in jail having to do that. Um, we don't want to, need to promote that aspect. of it. Um, But but the base level here again is is for for a um, for a legitimate purpose where somebody is advertising or wants to advertise or promote a product or something. There's no problem with this theory behind it, but the issue is. Let's take another step on top of that. Mm-hmm. if If you are a, a company who really likes, say, the University of Minnesota, what's to stop you from uh, employing the entire offensive line um, and paying them ridiculous sums of money to be your quote unquote spokespeople? Sure, where they may make you know one appearance a year and they're getting paid, say, a hundred thousand dollars to do it. I'm not saying that's actually happening at the University of Minnesota, but Mm -hmm. you can see how that could start to creep into these types of equations. They're getting compensated, you know, I'm using the the air quotes here, they're getting compensated for appearing and being a spokespeople, but is that really market driven in in any fashion here? Or is it just a designed way to allow a booster to to influence student athletes' decisions? Right. So a collective is really a group of boosters getting together and saying, we're going to pool our money and be able to, to impact a lot of student-athletes that way versus you know, a one-to-one contractual relationship. It benefits the student-athletes because as college kids, they may not have access to advisors or, or in market-driven people who are, are able to, to guide them through that process. So the collective can help them and do that. At the same level, the boosters are able to funnel money together into uh, one way to, to make a bigger impact. And I will not note. Uh, I will note that not all collectives are evil in this sense. Are mm-hmm, trying to go mm-hmm. down with with amateurism. Um, there are a couple out there that have been started by the student athletes themselves, saying we're a cooperative, right. trying to to levy ourselves as one big group. Collectively, we can do better and, and produce better for all of us together.
0: I was just about to ask that question because I, we're seeing now groups. Of, Kind of like possibly the uh, the University of Minnesota offensive line who are selling um, access and a- appearances like we'll, we'll come to your party or you can come and hang out with us for an hour for X amount of money that's that's happening now isn't it? yeah and, and you know University of Minnesota has, has I think two of them that have been
3: started by student athletes themselves that are, are really just trying to base that and saying, hey you know we may have strengths and weaknesses in ourselves individually in this brand, but together we can hopefully raise more for ourselves right. in accordance sure this is a game changer really all in from from a f- traditional funding of college athletics mm-hmm. um because you're starting to see donors say Warren goggins say you know whatever whatever larger organization that have traditionally donated to college sports do they may get more bang for their buck donating directly to the institution or would they be better off donating to say a collective that can benefit student athletes mm-hmm. or potentially mm-hmm. even recruit new student athletes
0: wow Coach, um, 1987, uh, the Southern Methodist University football program was banned from competitive play by the NCAA because the football program was found to be providing improper benefits to its players, cars, clothes, jewelry, housing, cash. Of course, SMU wasn't the only program providing those improper benefits, but they were, they were given what the uh, media called the NCAA's death penalty. How is what SMU was doing in the 70s and the 80s different from what the new NIL rules will allow today?
2: Well, I I think what you're seeing with NIL, and and people would argue that it's just legitimizing what to a degree has been happening for decades. So, you know, and going back a little bit on on the history Eric was talking about, the the amateurism student-athlete moniker those were legal defenses because the NCAA wanted to fight at all costs student athletes being considered employees because then there's liability for injuries and long term injuries. So that's where that terminology came from. And, and that's part of the reason they've always fought for the, the amateurism status. Uh, they've greatly restricted student athletes ability to, to make money, even having jobs while on scholarship um, to what I would say is a, a ridiculous um policy long term and and now it's all unraveling so you know obviously back in those days it it wasn't legal um my you know maybe i'm a little cynical but i I think you look at situations like that you look at um you know way back when the university of minnesota had issues with um academics and Mm -hmm. allegations I, i don't think schools around the country were pointing fingers saying oh these these people are horrible what are they doing i think they were saying thank goodness this wasn't us Because I I think it was commonplace, and I think it's been commonplace for for a very long time, and and not just 20, 30, 40 years. I think almost from the inception, there's instances of universities playing athletes that weren't enrolled in school. Uh, I think the University of Pittsburgh, way back in the day, the underclassmen went on strike because they weren't getting as much much money as the upperclassmen. So there's a long history of this, and what NIL is going to do is it's opened the floodgates. So, you know, Eric's description of collectives, uh, I think is, is a, a really good overview of them. But the reality is, is that some of the schools, as soon as this happened, they had tens of millions of dollars at their disposal. You know, there's, there's going to be a quarterback at Miami. That's going to get $8.5 million in collectives before he's or uh, in NIL before he's ever taken a snap. And as, is programs get more sophisticated what's been somewhat entertaining for me over the summer is I'll see program a loses a player so they transfer out of there they go to a school which I know is loaded with NIL money and I know they're getting paid in a month's coaching circles I'm, I'm pretty confident I know how much they're getting paid and then three days later I'll see that school announces that they've formed a collective and, and what's happened is some of those schools are just they're, they're slow to the game and they're going to pay for it. I, there's another situation where um, in a state where they did not have laws that that were in play for NILs, they couldn't do anything until the law got passed. It was delayed. They lost players because of that. Mm. So it, it's a rapidly changing landscape, and, and what's going to happen is the most organized people who are willing to put out the most money are going to be the most competitive, and I, I think realistically they'll probably be 20 programs in the country that will be ultra competitive and Mm -hmm. then everybody else is going to be chasing that. And and as Eric noted, the the question now becomes, all right, we have the business school trying to raise money, right? We have the athletic department trying to raise money. We need to build a new stadium for $350 million. Where does a booster put their money, right? Do they want to spend a million dollars for the stadium and put their name on it or 10 million, whatever the cost would be, or do they want to buy athletes? So they win. And that's essentially what they're doing um, in the most practical terms. And it it changes the landscape, the whole idea that that these student athletes are going to school full time. And, you know, now all of a sudden you're you're a combined family income of one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. You're buying student tickets. You're paying all the fees. To go watch these games, and the quarterback's making four million dollars. You know how does that feel? Right. And I think that's going to be something people are going to have to come to terms with. You know, just I,
0: I'm trying to sort of extrapolate this a little bit into the future too. Assuming that um, sort of the the playing field levels between schools like, say, you know, Alabama and 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 USC and and uh, Clemson. Um, can you do you foresee? Uh, The competition for players becoming such that schools will actually have, will they be able to have departments that would help kids get endorsements or would there be an informal cooperative associated with the school for that exact purpose associated with the athletic department? How does, how would that all work or is that, is that against the rules yet?
2: I'm confident that schools are going to stay as far away from this as they can. Okay. And that's why they've organized collectives. I, I think they will have to provide some support uh, because obviously there's, ta- there's tax implications. If someone's getting $2 million, um, it's obviously taxable income. Uh, I do, From what I've seen, I, I do not think there's going to be any effort to enforce this. Um, I, I think this, like I said, I think this has become a little bit of the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's going to be hard to enforce. It, it, it's you're dealing with commerce; um, they can't restrict that. You can't restrict terms of contracts. If you, you know, if I'm business A and I want to pay someone ten million dollars to put out one Instagram post, you know, if that's what I want to do, that's what I can do. And, and so it's going to be difficult to regulate. And like I said, as places become more sophisticated and organized. Mm -hmm. Um, the price the these athletes are going to make is just going to increase
3: schools are are just uh jumping in here for a sec schools are uh, prohibited from paying players to to play. Mm-hmm. So schools can't really directly be involved in this. But okay. of course, you know, boosters have always positioned themselves close enough to schools so they can make inf- and influence decisions accordingly based on, on that alone. So, you know, the, the boosters themselves are going to keep doing what they've always done, as Coach was, was very eloquently saying. Um, they're there. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. And just now they can do it out in the open versus having to hide behind, an, uh, you know, some other shields to, to do that. Um, but the key aspect here, though, is a, a lot of schools are, are trying to jump in the game to uh, to help student athletes understand what their brand value is so you know there are curriculum being developed at you know a number of schools university of florida being one Uh, i'm developing a curriculum at st cloud state for example um, to assist uh, student athletes in um, understanding how to develop a a, nil Agreement itself, you know, uh, Saint Cloud State is a great, great institution to look at. It's got two Division One sports, men's hockey and women's hockey. Mm-hmm. The rest of its school is at the Division Two level. Um, there's those student athletes are still able to get NIL dollars. It's in a major metropolitan area of the Twin Cities market itself, um, but you're having Division One uh, players that will go on and potentially play in the NHL. So you've got student athletes there that have brand possibilities, but they have no clue how to actually leverage that. Right. Uh, a number of universities have partnered with private groups that'll come in and kind of provide those representation services. Mm-hmm. So the school itself doesn't have to to oversee it and provide that uh, because, again, the NCAA can prohibit the school from actually paying players to play. Sure. Um, and also the school can't really involve himself with it, as Coach said, because of the liability aspects that go into that. So all the school can really do is guide, provide resources, and say, Go at it. Do what you want to do.
0: Interesting.
1: You're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is Public Policy This Week, and we're your hosts, Rich Larson and Joe Moravchick. Today we're discussing the major changes taking place in college athletics, specifically the effects of the new name, image, and likeness rules for college athletes. Our guests are college men's basketball coach, Pat Miller, and attorney and professor, Eric Brever. Coach, I want to return to something you were just talking about a second ago. Uh, These players are going to make multi-millions from these NIL deals. USA Today and The Athletic are reporting that there is a five-star high school football prospect that has signed an NIL deal where he'll make appearances and social media promotions for a record $8 million. He hasn't even walked on a college football field yet. How do you anticipate the NIL rules will affect the chemistry between teammates and groups of teammates in the locker room and on the field to play, for you're going to have these millionaires on college teams, but you're also going to have players that do the same amount of preparation and work and practice that are not going to get NIL money at all.
2: Well, it's going to be no different than a professional locker room and where you have different athletes making very, very different levels of money, and, and that is now something that coaches are going to have to manage and, you know, it's it's interesting, Joe, because as Eric said, what, what is the value of these players? So the number one grossing college athletic program in the country was Texas A&M at $192 million. That, that's what they made in, in that fiscal year. So what does a quarterback, what is a running back, what is a Heisman Trophy candidate, what is that worth to that institution? And, and when you look at, you know, the other major element of this that plays into it, and I, I don't want to get off too much on conference realignment, but conference realignment is 100% about markets. That, that's all it's about. It's all about right. media markets. How much money can the Big Ten network pay their institutions? So right now, I think the SEC, I think those schools get around, I want to say, $60 million a year. The Big Ten's working on a new deal. So the schools have that pool of money, and, and that's just going to grow. That's why US, UCLA and USC – is part of the Big Ten because it's the L.A. market. They have Rutgers in the New York market. They have Maryland in the D.C. market and so on and so forth. So that's what that's all about. The other thing you have to, to look at, for example, a college football Saturday in Madison, and I had a friend who was in that athletic department. They estimated the economic impact on the community, and this was probably 10 or 12 years ago, was 6 to $8 million. So, so not only are the universities benefiting in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, the communities are benefiting. So th- this has been going on for a long time. And the people providing the entertainment, you know, no one goes to watch Nick Saban. They go to watch the amazing athletes that Alabama has. Yes, yeah. Right. And, and, and the people that are getting hurt, that are working hard every day, were the only ones not being compensated. And this is going to be a major reversal of what I think personally has been really short-sighted policy. Um, I, I think a really... an attempt by the ncaa to to limit income i I think they could have gone about about this in a very different way that would allowed for some type of just compensation for athletes which which would be deservedly so but they haven't and 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 now the whole idea of of how much are these guys really students so i i think and, and i don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that before too long a lot of these schools will break from the ncaa because they don't really need them um, Interesting, and, and I and I think it's also very possible that a lot of these athletes will not be students. They'll have the option um, if they don't want to be students. They probably won't have to be. I mean, if we have a quarterback making eight million dollars going to go to the NFL, you know, does he need a sociology degree? You know, and, and I think th- they will look at these people and say, look, you're you're you know part of the university. You don't have to go to classes. Uh, I, I don't know that, that that's far-fetched. I think that very much could happen. So it, it, it's all going to trickle down. It, it clearly will will create issues in locker rooms um, without question. And and as I said, I think as it goes on, it will get more sophisticated and people will get better at it. They'll be better aligning people with money. And, and like I said, you'll have a number of schools. I, I think there's programs now in, in men's basketball where the whole team is compensated. I think you know they're all going to make a couple hundred thousand to – 650,000, they're going to get cars, they're going to get apartments, and they're essentially professional athletes.
1: Eric, so the Big Ten is no longer a Midwest Conference. It stretches from coast to coast. It was a head scratcher at first when Rutgers and Maryland joined. Doesn't seem that way anymore. What was the thought process for Maryland and Rutgers, in your opinion?
3: Well, coach said it right. I mean, uh, college sports now is about markets, and television, particularly, is markets, and, and conferences are trying to, to, to really uh, grow into those markets itself. For the Big Ten, at the time, they're looking and exploring how can they can expand their television footprint itself. And by bringing in Rutgers, bringing in Maryland, you brought in the New York city market, you brought in the Washington DC market. So you know, having UCLA and USC come in, the big 10 now controls four of the five biggest markets in the country in terms of television. So um, previously, historically college football, and and remember college football drives the bus here. I mean, that's where all the revenue is. That's where the eyeballs are. It's probably the second biggest uh, valued show on all of uh, television number one being the NFL, mm-hmm. college football is right behind it. And, and in many ways can be a little broader impact because, you know, it's just more attainable to, to most people because every school is going to have a college football, right? Um, so it's really all about uh, call it, uh, finding markets itself. Um, as we've seen kind of the decline of, of television per se, you know, people are cord cutting and the like uh, from cable. What, what you're really rolling with now is is, and especially with the NIL coming on board, we're talking about markets in which we can look at advertising dollars itself. So the bigger areas is, are, are still really important here because nil dollars will generally flow through major metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. The University of Minnesota is very well situated. You're a Big Ten oh, member. Yeah. Yep. You're in a major, you know, top fifteen mar- market in the country.
0: In an urban campus. Yeah. yeah,
3: but you look at Iowa State, for example, and you say, "Oh, sorry, man." You know, you're a great school, you're a, formerly a Power 5 school. Incredible following, incredible they love their following, football there, yeah. But you're in the outskirts of Des Moines, and you're the second, city, second school in your state. Yeah. It's going to be tough to be an Iowa State fan over the next five years,
0: unfortunately. My sister is a, a Cyclone alum, and, and uh, watching Iowa State football with her is going to be a very difficult thing for her. So, Eric, let me ask you this. Um, Forbes is reporting that, that, that female athletes with with large social media followings, you know, TikTok, Instagram, all the things that I don't completely understand. <laughs> um they stand to be big winners uh, uh of NIL reform. Uh Paige Beckers, a star guard for for UConn, um and a former, you know, Hopkins Minnesota State uh, uh uh basketball star she signed with Gatorade. Now among others, um well, she signed with Gatorade and a whole bunch of other people I guess. But she might make upwards of a million dollars a year while she's still playing college ball based on your knowledge and your experience. Do you foresee female athletes benefiting from the new NIL rules?
3: I do, and, and pages is, is sort of the the poster girl for this itself. You, you know, and I mentioned earlier Title IX. It's the fiftieth anniversary of Title IX. Yep. For, for the last fifty years, uh, schools have been have been reaching to find equitable means of of giving an equivalent opportunity to female athletes as have been provided to, to male athletes, and that's what Title IX is all about. Um, and, and you know, that's it's lagged in many ways, just. We haven't seen um, the notoriety. We haven't seen mm-hmm. the, the media kind of grab on to, to uh, women's athletes in the same way because of a perception that eyeballs only want to watch football or men's basketball mm-hmm. or men's hockey or, or whatever the chosen sport would be. Uh, I think what we're finding is that the social media has a different way of reaching people in a much different way. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if somebody makes a TikTok video, you get to know them personally, mm-hmm. individually versus sort of the perception of them put out through the game itself or through a men's basketball broadcast, which has been the traditional way we've interacted with it, or or a major um, newspaper or or magazine, for example. Um, But because social media allows an athlete to to go directly to the consumer itself, Paige Beckers can have a phenomenal following and thus be in a spot where marketers look to her and say, yes, I want you to market because not only do you reach um, the, the female contingent who tends to follow women basketball but also you are approachable even by say young impressionable young men who find her potentially
0: attractive or even
3: a great basketball player and want to follow the game
0: she's just a great shooter i just like to watch her play she's a
3: great player she's a great
0: person yeah
3: i mean she's just a, a nice approachable person who cares about the community cares about a lot of things at least that's the brand she's developed for herself um she's done it the right way and there's real credit to her for doing that but as a result that makes her quite valuable Mm -hmm. and what we're seeing throughout uh women's basketball is there is money to be made for those basketball players who are like that and it's not who you'd expect to be because traditionally it's been the quarterback it's been the stud the the leading scorer well doesn't have to be that anymore the the, right. in, the unique individual is able to kind of develop their own brand, and if they can gather enough followers to do that, well, there you go you uh, You now have a, a value in that brand itself to be able to market and sell to so this is a game changer itself because it's it 's really changing how we perceive these individuals itself um, and, and as a result, markets follow. Uh, We're finding actually uh, television uh, networks are starting to notice that there actually is interest in watching women's basketball Mm -hmm. because for years that wasn't the case. Um, So how that changes media habits, media broadcasting over the next five, ten years is going to be really fun to watch because I think it will really give a a boost to, to women's sports in general.
1: I agree. Pat, earlier this summer, Coach Nick Saban of Alabama football accused Texas A&M Coach Jimbo Fisher of buying his newest recruiting class with NIL agreements. Coach Fisher countered publicly stating that Alabama's recruiting practices should be scrutinized, implying malfeasance. How do you anticipate the new NIL rules will affect college recruiting and retention of athletes? Of course, you just mentioned this idea of free agency. So recruiting and retention – especially at the highest levels of football and basketball.
2: Well, it's going to be just that. It's going to be people going to the highest bidder and, you know, not to give specific examples, but there's clearly many examples out there where people are at schools, they do very well, they've had success, and then they leave. And, and, And again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which schools are best positioned for NIL. You know, you look at every college football forecast and, the, the teams they, they talk about that are going to emerge, you know, USC being one of them, Texas A&M, you know, and, and it with all of this stuff, you know, we could summarize it by saying, follow the money. If you have mm-hmm. a million followers and we can put Gatorade in front of a million people, we're going to pay you. Mm-hmm. If you have a major media market and we can put eight games on TV, we're going to pay you the, to the schools. And, and it's the same with the athletes. They are going to go where, where the money is. And, and, and good for them. You know, you know, I did things the right way, went to school, got my degree, I've worked hard for 30 years. And, and some of these people will make more money in their college careers in, in a couple of years than I'll make my entire career and, and good for them to monetize their, their ability. They're generating tremendous amounts of revenue. Um, but it, it's like I said, it, it's going to be very hard to police in, in like everything in athletics when, you know, prior to this, it was how do you somehow monetize athletes without getting caught without it being obvious do you wait till they're graduated and and, and do things for them or they're done with eligibility so there's always been a million ways around the rules you know I I would argue that players have been getting paid forever Um, like I said before this just legitimizes it but but now it becomes who's the best at it you know so during the era of facilities everyone was fighting battling to build these new facilities, all these amenities, putting it online as inducements. Now it's going to be who can put together the best NIL programs, who can get that in front of players, and, and how can players maximize um, their, their, their worth. And, and as you guys know, there's families involved. There's extended mm-hmm. families mm-hmm. involved. So whenever you're dealing with these high-level players that have – and again, some of these athletes are, are worth – you know, 10s, 20 million dollars because they're going to go to professional sports. They're going to have obscene contracts. So, you know, it's all part of the process. Now, it's just a fundamental change of what we've always perceived college athletics to be. Now, I don't know that that perception was necessarily accurate, but this is just putting it out front, legalizing it, that these are high level athletes. There's a lot of money involved and these people are going to get paid.
0: All right, And that actually just plays right into my next question. Yep. Eric, I'm going to give you a chance to, to talk about this. Um, you, know, you look at a school like Alabama. They've won six of the last 13 national championships. Um, many college football fans, myself as a gopher fan, myself included, right, uh, would like to see more parity in the sport. How does the NIL uh, rule changes, how does, that, how does that affect this? And, and, and will this allow for more parity? Or do you think these these power uh, uh, programs are going to continue to dominate the sport?
3: Well, I don't think it's going to necessarily provide any parity or difference in parity than what's there prior. I think there's going to be a little bit of reshuffling based on, as, as Coach said, who's better at the NIL piece. Um, you know jackson state is a really great example jackson state hired deon sanders you know mm-hmm. prime time neon mm-hmm. neon uh, as their head football coach and he has been going out and, and doing a phenomenal job of bringing in young talent and, and f- talent that otherwise would have considered uh, going to a, a, a sec school like alabama or, mm-hmm. or georgia or the like and here's little jackson state which is a historically black college mm-hmm. they're pulling in top four star talent five star talent what is going on here? Um, But, you know, it's the NIL dollars at work to be able to kind of reshuffle this uh, and push it in this way. By the same point, you still have this reorganization of college athletics. And when your, your Big Ten and your SEC, uh, you know, are, are really putting themselves on a, a tier above everybody else, um, follow the money, as Coach said, that's where, where it's going to start with. If you are considering wanting to be in, in highly paid or highly compensated, and let's face it, who isn't right. necessarily wanting to be at that level, um, you're going to be looking at those two conferences first because you will assume, and pro- probably rightly, that your resources are going to be greatest at those two conferences itself so in among the conferences there may be more parity because you know a four-star recruit that could have gone to a max school for example is now going to say well why would i go to the max school when i can be a four-star recruit at Michigan State or at Indiana, I think there'll be more parity potentially within the SEC and the Big Ten, mm-hmm. um, but everybody else, no, that that gaps can get a lot bigger. Uh, just in terms of dollars itself, I mean, it's, it's noted right now that, that potentially the Big Ten's take away from media rights deals could be over a hundred million dollars per school um, as a payout <laughs> annually. Man, the big uh, the University of Minnesota's annual athletics budget last year, or the last year non-COVID year, was $125 million. The media rights alone could pay for, essentially, most of the University of Minnesota's costs as an athletic department. You know, so tickets and sponsorships and everything else they get, that's just all icing on the cake for them to be able to expend on, on student-athletes itself. And and those, so they can't pay to play, but, boy, if, you, if you've seen the University of Oregon's locker room uh, in football, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you've seen uh, the Go for football practice facility, they find a way of, of providing resources to those student-athletes. Right.
1: Right. Perhaps, bo- perhaps for both of you, are there going to be major colleges that say, let's say maybe Duke or Cal or Colorado, that say, we're not doing this, we're not going to be a part of this NIL and... Perhaps they can't do it, but what is your thoughts on some of the – and what I mean about it is you have these phenomenal educational institutions that may now want to be involved in the this war in college athletics that's about to take place. Maybe they just focus on education.
3: Yeah, you could do so at your own risk. I mean, it's the, the decision – the Alston and O'Bannon decisions didn't really touch on whether an institution itself could individually say – you can't do this. Right. I tend to think that they wouldn't be able to because it's an outside activity not really related to their educational environment. Yeah. But a, perhaps a private college would be able to say, hey, that's not within our religious beliefs. We want people focusing on you know, religion and not necessarily on the almighty dollar on business. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can get by with it on, on one of those grounds itself. Uh, but the money is too good. You're really benefiting student-athletes at a base level here, at least the philosophy of it is. Uh, you may see some Division One schools, the, the, say, Power or, or next five the group of five whatever you want to call it start looking and saying you know what we can't compete with that we're not going to try and, and therefore we'd like our own tier where we don't we can kind of play in a level playing field with schools who are in a similar boat as we are because we just we can't compete
1: Pat do you have a thought on that
2: yeah I have a lot of thoughts on that it's yeah uh... <laughs> I, I don't think this ever gets to this point without the complicity of university presidents and administrations. Mm. They, they've allowed this to happen. They, they've, In my mind, they've, their status as, as academic institutions, do you think Duke and Michigan, do you think they're not making exceptions for athletes? I mean, do do we really right. believe that? Right. I mean, of course, no, we don't. No, we don't. You know, the, the conference USA schools get about a half a million dollars annually from their TV contracts. You know, we just talked about the Big Ten making a hundred million, so they're they're not going to try to opt out. You know, like you mentioned Iowa State, they're going to fight tooth and nail to get into one of these. You know, what I think will probably be two or three conferences that are going to have a share of this money. So I think you're going to have the halves. And then you're going to, you know, what I worry about is the Conference USA's, the MAX, the Summit League. Mm -hmm. What happens to them? Mm -hmm. Because, and and I know, you know, some of those smaller schools, they have a lot of money. And and they can probably do some things, but it's, some schools aren't. Uh, I've talked to some University of Wisconsin alum, and they love the Badgers. They want them to be successful, but I'm not so sure they're willing to pay millions of dollars for that athletic success i think they still view it primarily as an elite academic institution and that's their their affinity for it so i I think part of it is going to depend on the donor base and you know we talked about texas a&m i I believe you know don't quote me on this i think they have the most billionaires uh, of any school in the country so you know, I think it's pretty safe to say. You know, if if Nick Saban's taking shots at Texas A and M, they're probably going to be pretty good, pretty fast. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. So, Coach, let's let's boil this down closer to home. Um, in Northfield, we have two Division three schools: St. Olaf uh, College, Carlton College. You obviously are the coach of a a, a Division three basketball powerhouse in Whitewater. Um, early discussions about NIL are, have that's all been D one, but. Where does how does this come down to D three? I mean, how, how will this affect you? What type of changes in D three athletics do you anticipate because of all this?
2: Well, I think it always be, it becomes the same principles on a smaller scale. So even if you look at Division two, they, they have let's say for example St. Cloud State for men's basketball has ten full scholarships. Mm-hmm. They can take those scholarships and break them up however they want. So now all of a sudden, you know, they have you know a student athlete's going to get the 70 7200 in federal pell and then we're going to give you a partial scholarship and now we have a NIL gift in kind of housing so now I can take those 10 scholarships and I can turn them into 18 scholarships which is going to allow me to bring in more more athletes at at a full scholarship and it's going to be no different in division 3 now you're you know, St. John's and, you know, your tuition's high, but you're going to get this leadership scholarship. Um, you're going to get this academic scholarship. So now you're down to 20,000. Same thing, now you have a NIL where you're going to get free housing and you get a, you know, a $2,500. So now your costs become 8,000. So what is Illinois Wesleyan going to do? What is Whitewater going to do? So again, it becomes how, how do you manage, the NIL. I think what's probably going to be a little more challenging at division three is finding groups that will form collectives and do that because the schools, as a coach, I can't go to a business and say, hey, you know, I have this kid I really want. Can you put together some kind of NIL so I can get them X amount of money? That's not legal. Um, so, so again, how it's organized, who's going to be proactive, and, and quite frankly, who, who wants to win? You know, right. there, there's a couple of division three schools who have massive donors. They have, you know, $30 million arenas, incredible facilities. Mm-hmm. If, the, if these people want to say, you know what, I'm going to give a hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, 20,000, you know, times five to, to get five basketball players, they can do that. And those, they essentially become scholarship schools. So, so there's a lot of things that can happen depending on people's willingness and financial ability to, to, compete at the highest level they want.
1: Eric, what are your thoughts about changes to Division 3 athletics because of the new NIL rules? Well,
3: yeah, I mean, I think the the NCAA has really looked at itself as a part of this process and, and taken a step back uh and said, well, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Should we continue to be doing and be the major enforcer uh, of all of um, all of college athletics as it's been, as we've known it, um, you know, Coach, we were talking before the, the program itself. Coach had asked the question, uh, "When was the last time you heard of a, a student athlete being uh, being dealt with as being academically ineligible <laughs> right. by the NCAA?" It, it just it doesn't happen anymore. The NCAA has has evolved in such a way of saying we're not going to be the the chief enforcer anymore. So what I think you're, you're going to see at a top level down, starting with because the big dogs are driving the bus here, right? Um, you're, you're seeing your conferences and, and I'll say your group of five um, or really the big two right now mm-hmm. at the Big Ten the SEC who are going to say, we'll do the enforcing for our particular schools. We're going to do it our way and the way our schools want to have it run. So you're going to see rule making within conferences and, and like schools getting together within conferences. And again, they're going to be stretching likely from coast to coast um, because that's where the media dollars are going to be. Um, If the Big Ten can show a a game from 11 in the morning Eastern until, um, you know, really midnight, midnight, uh, they're going to be able to do that now because they are essentially their own programming network like ESPN is in its own way. So as that trickles down, you're gonna see similar aspects within, I think, Division three itself, which as Coach kind of alluded to, you've got schools that wanna win, that wanna be successful, that are pouring resources into athletics, and schools that may not be at the same level wanting to do that. Still wanna provide a great experience for their students, uh, you know, students that wanna continue playing and participating, but not really interested in, in trying to win at a national stage at a Division Three level. So I, I think you'll see the NCAA kind of explore that more and saying maybe Division Three needs to have two different tiers to it in its own right, where you've got a group that wants to play in a national tournament, a group that may not want to. Um, so I think that's all coming down to play with this as well. And that's all really, again, related to the NIL and the enforcement that goes into it. Uh, one more note on this too, uh, if you missed it, this, about a month or so ago, the State High School League passed its own NIL policy here in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, and while you know from a marketing perspective, if you just look at it in balance, what's the value of a high school athlete? You know how many? Mm-hmm. Uh, Warrenson Goggins is not as interested in, in necessarily <laughs> sponsoring a high school athlete uh, for, as a spokesperson for for our group, um, but you know Paige Beckers, when she was a high school student athlete, was one that probably could have commanded some real dollars behind it because of her social media presence and the like. So the State High School Leagues being out in the forefront of this itself, I don't think there's any problem with the legitimate piece because I think the brands itself and the market will take care of those dollars uh, and what's being uh, conveyed appropriately for those student-athletes. But there's always a perception among parents as to maybe my child is worth more Mm -hmm. than, say, the market (laughs) might bear. So they could position (laughs) their kids in a way that may not be probably in the best interest of the child from an objective perspective. Um, But the other aspect always is, is As coaches allude to many times how do you enforce this you know how do if there are collectives starting to develop at a high school level how do you enforce this and as coach said and i've I've said this in my classes itself nil is the wild west it is a brand new ball game there is no enforcement itself how do we patrol this how do we police this how do we maintain a level playing field Uh, will be a, a very difficult question to determine and right now the ncaa is saying not our problem anymore you said you don't want to be our problem Conferences, you deal with it.
1: Let's wind down with some public policy thoughts. Pat and Eric, the NCAA's stated mission is to govern competition in a fair, safe, and equitable and sportsmanlike manner and to integrate intercollegiate athletics and higher education so that the educational experience of the student-athlete is paramount. Yet, the NCAA has long fought the idea of athletes that participate in NCAA competition – from owning their own name, image, and likeness. This, of course, is now changed, and the Supreme Court in the Alston case summed up what athletes have long held true, writing, the bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year. Those enormous sums of money flow to seemingly everyone except the student-athletes. That's the Supreme Court. Ultimately... Are the NIL changes good for college athletes, and are the NIL changes good for college athletic programs? Pat,
2: I think it's going to be good for athletes. I'm not confident it's good for college athletics in general because of everything we've talked about, and since I'm already on record as um, the show cynic, <laughs> there is a mission statement. There's your, there's your stated mission. And then there is the way you've gone about your business year in and year out for decades. And when those things don't mesh, there's an issue. And, and Jay Billis, famously, if anyone follows him on Twitter, um, former Duke player and NBA anal- or, uh, NCAA analyst, always sarcastically puts out tweets saying there's just not enough money. And I think it's <laughs> something that, that all of us in Division Three have experienced when we, we have to fight to get our fields expanded, uh, we have to fight to, to not play the same opponents in the tournament that we play in our, in our regions because there's not enough money. And then you see the NCAA basketball CBS contract is, is worth billions of dollars. So sometimes it's hard to reconcile the mission and the day-to-day action.
3: I'll jump in on this, too, and I agree with Coach. I mean, he's got it right. Um, a former lawyer I worked with, worked for always said, it's not about the money, it's about the money. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really true in this instance. It's, it's following the money itself. I think it is good for student-athletes. I think it, it gives them some freedom where they, you know, if they tried to abide by the rules previously, it really restricted them really inappropriately. Um, but the worry here is the abuse and what this could do to, to shift – things really in a way that may not, be, uh, may not allow for a level playing field. Uh, not to say the NCAA was right all these years, because as Coach said, this hasn't been really practicing what they've preached for, for a very long time. Uh, but as Coach alluded to, too, they've, they've reaped what they've sowed. And now they're, they're going to have to live with it. And um, in a way, it's, it's kind of gone full circle because all this stuff happened back in 1892 when, when uh, Elliot made his, his comment that he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's happening all over again. So,
1: Well, Rich, that was a fast, <laughs> phenomenally interesting and informative half or hour of radio. Our guests for today's episode of Public Policy This Week have been Coach Pat Miller and Attorney and Professor Eric Brever. Thank you both for being a part of our show
0: yeah I want to I want to echo Joe you guys have been fantastic your insight into this uh this issue has been great and coach I frankly I want to thank you for your cynicism as well too I I personally really appreciate that well Well, I can oh go ahead I'm sorry go ahead
2: oh I just said there's plenty of that
0: (laughs) what's what happens when you do 30 years of anything right Well, that concludes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We are on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, every Friday morning at 10 a.m. My name's Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Jill Morabchik. Please tell your friends and family, and really just anyone you know, about public policy this week. It's our hope that this show can be a small step to having meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and get away from the high-volume rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. We want our listeners to be informed by facts and data and to hear from policy experts and to be able to use that information to make personal decisions about highly complex policy issues exactly like what we've been talking about today. Thank you for joining us for Public Policy this week. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday when we, talk, we switch gears completely and talk about township governance. We'll be back next Friday, uh, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb
1: weekend. Take care.